You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Last week we we saw at the end of chapter 16 um, the sorrow that the disciples were feeling, uh, but then the joy that's promised in the midst of that sorrow uh, for his disciples. And so Jesus responds to the sorrow that he's uh, seeing in the lives of his disciples and talks about the joy that is to come. Um, he promises that the joy rooted in his return can be found even in the midst of sorrow, that when our joy is placed that way, it's exempt from being stolen by the circumstances of this world, and it can be increased to the fullest through answered prayer. And so we talked about remembering that sorrow is temporary, that seasons of joy are guaranteed to follow uh, by Christ. Uh, we persevere in the sorrow because it's forgettable that only for a little while uh, do we experience it, and then the joy comes making it worth it. And we talked about the the, the illustration of, of birth and how there, there's pain in childbirth, but then the, the baby on the other side makes that, that, that pain and, and difficulty uh, worth it. And it's even forgettable that a that a woman starts to, as distance is created, starts to forget some of that because of the joy that's experienced on the other side. And we talked about finding your lasting joy in the coming of Christ, praying intentionally to increase your joy, and anticipating failures, but expecting victory. That um, as the disciples were responding to Jesus's teaching, he warns them about this coming failure that's about to happen for them, that they're going to scatter and, and run uh, but that he encourages them by saying that he's overcome the world and they will as well. And so he guarantees a peace and victory in the future. And so I challenged you last week to to pray prayers uh, that are focused on his mission rather than your comfort, to to pray with a different type of mindset, to, to pray with uh, Christ's mission being accomplished in response to what we saw last week. And as we come to chapter 17, um, Lauren and I were driving around uh, this week, and I asked her to just start reading to me chapter 17 because I was trying to figure out how far I was going to go. Um, and she got done reading, and we both were like, well, you should probably just cover the whole thing today because it just, it just fits all together as one prayer. Then I remembered I really need to get done a little bit early today because I have to work today at Trinity. So uh, I'm not going to try to accomplish the entire prayer. And so we're just going to stay with verses 1 through 5 today. But... I do want to read the entire thing today um, because I do believe it helps us to see verses 1 through 5 in the context of where Jesus is going uh, with this entire prayer. So I'm going to read that for us, um, and then we're going to jump right into the text. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that you know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in you, be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, these that you have sent these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Our summary sentence for today, looking at verses one through five. As Jesus prepared for the cross, his chief concern was how to bring God glory through it, leaving us an example that our chief concern each day must also be how we will bring God glory with the work we are called to do. As Jesus prepared for the cross, his chief concern was how to bring God glory through it, leaving us an example that our chief concern each day must also be how we will bring God glory with the work we are called to do. For our kids, our goal every day should be to celebrate God's goodness. So going back to those first five verses, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we see this, uh, this concern by Jesus to make sure that God receives glory for the events that are about to come. And we're going to see how God the Father is going to receive glory through the Son being glorified through these events that are to take place as well. But as we see the heart of Jesus and the prayers to his heavenly Father, um, it, it, it helps us to see, I think, the, the concerns that we're to have in our own prayer life, and and the concerns that we're to have as we approach uh, our day as well. The outline for this chapter can be broken up into three sections, with verses 1 through 5, Jesus focusing on uh, prayers for himself in relationship to what is to come. Verses 6 through 19, we see prayers for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, we see specific prayers for the future church that we are included in. And so we'll see a breakdown of of these different uh, things that he mentions in his prayers over the coming weeks. 
as he's praying for his disciples and for the future church, we see themes of security and joy and unity and future glory being things that Christ is concerned about us experiencing and God the Father doing in us. Um, and it's what he's praying for as he gets ready to leave. And so he's been prepping his disciples for all this stuff to come. And now he prays for the effectiveness in the lives of his disciples. And so in, at the end of chapter 16, uh, Jesus is talking about the world and the hatred that's going to come from the world towards his disciples. And then he gives them this assurance that he has overcome the world, so they too will be able to overcome the world. And then here in chapter 17, you see that he is praying a lot about our relationship to the world, right? So he's, he's portraying this truth to disciples that victory is coming, but then he's also praying to the Heavenly Father that victory will come for us over the world. And we're assured of this. We're assured that he has overcome the world and we will too. In 1 John chapter 5, same author he talks about our victory over the world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Not some of the people that have been born of God, not most of the people, but everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? The indication here is that we we even know the salvation of those around us based on them overcoming the world, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of them, that there's uh, the the perseverance of the saints taking place and, and they're overcoming the world through their faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And John assures us that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. But how's that even possible? How can we be assured of that? In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, talking about the accuser being cast down, and it says in verse 11, and they, talking about believers, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Right? There's this assurance for for the followers of Christ that that they will overcome the world. They will overcome the one who is orchestrating the world, right? Because Jesus even tells us in this high priestly prayer that he's praying that we won't be taken out of the world, Right? but that will persevere in it and be protected from, the, from, from Satan, essentially, right? And we're told here in Revelation that we do overcome the world, that we've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So not by our works, but by the works of Christ. And because Christ lives inside of us, it talks about us not loving our lives even unto death, that we're willing to lay down our life if need be to follow Christ. And that's certainly what he portrays as an extreme example in chapter 16, that uh, hardships are going to come. And for some, it may lead to their death. All right? Back in John now, chapter 17, I want us to first start by seeing just some theological truth in verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look more at the, the practical side of, of what do we do with Christ's prayer here in verses 1 through 5. All right? I want us to start by seeing some truths about the crucifixion. As Jesus is praying preparing to go to the cross, there's some things that I think we can clearly see from verses one through five that, that help us to better understand the cross, all right? Number one 
is that the timing of it was determined by God alone. For our kids, Jesus went to the cross at the time God told him to go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Right Now, we've seen through the Gospel of John the, the Pharisees wanting to seize Jesus, wanting to kill Jesus, wanting to arrest Jesus. And time and time again, we've been told the hour hadn't yet come. It wasn't yet time for that to take place. Jesus even talks about his, his own glory and his own manifestation of who he is. There being appropriate times and not appropriate times based on God's timetable, right? So even back in the very beginning of John, when he's at the wedding and, and his mother's asking him to do a miracle to, to transform things, he's, he's talking about the fact that it's not yet time for him to fully display who he is, right? So Jesus has been operating on God's timetable the entire gospel, and that doesn't change here with Judas coming uh, or Judas leaving to go betray him and this uh, arresting party coming to seize Jesus. All of that's part of God's timetable, right? The, the enemy is operating on God's timetable here. The hour has come, not because the enemy has determined it, but because the Father has determined it. The hour has come. The time has been determined by God alone. This hour that's come is an hour that's been longed for by creation since all the way back in the book of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the first mention of the Messiah where God promises to send somebody to reverse the effects of sin, right? And so creation's been longing for this, hoping for this. It started with uh, the birth of, um, of Abel and, and maybe, maybe, this is, maybe this is the chance, right? Cain and Abel and, and, and Eve starts to have kids and, and, and they're not the promised one. Right? They're, they're not the one that, that God is going to use to deliver mankind. And so constant anticipation for who this person's going to be. And, and we start to find out that he'll, he'll be like some of these Old Testament characters. They, they prefigure him, but none of them live up to what we need in a sacrificial lamb. Jesus comes, he's born, and now his hour has come to reverse the effects of sin. And it's on God's timetable. Right? Number two, the goal of the cross was the glory of the Father through the glory of the Son. The goal of the cross is the glory of the Father through the glory of the Son. For our kids, Jesus went to the cross to help mankind know God better. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, this is the, the ascension of Jesus after he has humbled himself taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, found in human form, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's exalted once again after the resurrection, right? He's given a name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? So even as Jesus is being portrayed in all of his glory, in Philippians chapter 2, after, after setting aside some of that to come to this earth, right, veiling some of that so that, so that he could come in the likeness of man and take on the, the, the human form, as he's re-exalted into heaven after the resurrection, it's for the glory of the Father, we're told here. And Jesus even talks back in John 17 about how he wants the Father to glorify him so that ultimately the Father is the one glorified. 
Now let's talk about these terms and really try to simplify it. And, and I liked the way that one of the commentators I was using did that, right? We could probably spend hours and, and weeks and, and months and years maybe trying to unpack the concept of God's glory. But for our sake, I think we need to simplify it so that we can at least uh, process and do something with it, right? And so I'm going to try to do that. And so I'm admitting to you that we are simplifying, obviously, a, a glorious thing that really can't be fully comprehended, right? But when we think in the terms of the glory of God in the noun format, right, I think we can really understand that as his divine goodness being displayed to us, right? When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his divine goodness, which obviously encompasses holiness and perfection and and all the things that I was kind of hearing you guys talking about in your discussion groups this morning. But it's him displaying to us kind of the, the, the character of who he is. And he chooses how to do that. And he chooses when to do that. And he chooses to progressively do that in scripture, right? But it's his divine goodness being displayed, his majesty and his splendor being revealed to us. And we see this in scripture in, in different ways. We see it first off in nature, right? In, in Psalm chapter 19, verse one, we know that the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the greatness and the goodness of God. Even, even lost people can see this, right? Like I'm in um, a Sonoy Facebook group site, and, and it's not uncommon for anybody and everybody to post pictures of sunsets recently that have taken place in, in this area, right? And so there's been some glorious sunsets. Lauren and I saw one on Friday night driving to dinner uh, to go to Noonan. Um, just magnificent uh, beauty in the sky, right? Even a lost person kind of pauses and steps back and says, wow, right? Like, like that right there, like there, it's hard to explain just the, the, the greatness of that, right? Um, individuals have seen greater displays of God's glory through scripture. Uh, individuals like Moses, uh, Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration, they've seen glimpses of, of God's goodness and greatness and glory in ways that not every human has been exposed to. Um, but really one of the best ways that we see God's goodness displayed is through the person of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you go to 1 John chapter 1, John talks about um, knowing God through Christ, right? That, that, that we've, we've walked with him, talked with him, we've experienced him in human form. And our knowledge of God has deepened because he has revealed himself through that second person of the Trinity, Christ, right? And so um, God's glory is displayed for us through the person of Jesus Christ. We can best know the Father by looking at Jesus because they are one, right? Jesus has uh, tirelessly and laboriously tried to show his disciples that the Father and the Son are one, right? Distinct persons and yet unified in their divinity and, and they're seen as one. Even as you saw me trying to read through chapter 17, you get kind of tongue-tied talking about Jesus's prayer because there's this overlap of him and God being one together, right? When we talk about the verb format of glory, so God's glory 
is his goodness displayed. What does it mean then for us to glorify God or to glory in God, right? I think we can understand this as being his divine goodness celebrated, right? It's us being aware of his goodness, being aware of his goodness, and then relishing in it, celebrating it. And we'll see as we continue through this, that celebration of his goodness should spill over into the lives of those around us to where they come to know God better, right? Because of our celebration of his goodness, right? We are making much of him in our own lives because we've recognized his goodness, we've seen his goodness, and we are now celebrating it, giving him honor and credit for everything taking place in our life. I heard, I heard one, one person in their group say that, when we glorify God, we're obviously not giving him something that he doesn't already possess, right? He's in possession of his own glory. He's in possession of his divine goodness, but he is displaying it to us. He's letting us know about it. He lets us know about it through Jesus, and we're going to see he really lets us know about it through Jesus on the cross, right? We then turn around and celebrate that glory, right? We see it. We recognize it. The Holy Spirit lifts our blindness so that we can, we can understand it, right? And then we're celebrating it in such a way that others come to know him more through the goodness that we're seeing in our life, all right? So that's kind of the verb format of what it means to, to glory in God or to glorify God. It's to celebrate his divine goodness. It's the appropriate response to his revelation of himself in our life. And we see here in John chapter 17 that both God the Father and God the Son both deserve glory. Jesus says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Because of their divinity, because they are both divine, they both deserve to be glorified. Jesus is the revelation of God's goodness on display for us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the display of God's goodness. He's that that tangible human example of who God is. And he's praying for his goodness. So Jesus is now praying for that goodness to be both seen and celebrated. That's at the heart of his prayer here as he gets ready to go to the cross. So he says, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. And so at the heart of his prayer is um, him wanting God's goodness to be both seen and celebrated. He's praying that that people that are about to witness what is gonna happen on the cross, that they would see it, that they would understand it, and be able to acknowledge it. Now the difficulty, and I put it in my notes, is that God's going to have to work against the negative perception of the cross. If you read Deuteronomy 21-23 and Galatians 3-13, both those passages talk about the curse and the negative perception that's associated with somebody who hangs on a cross. Good people don't hang on crosses, right? Um, Criminals hang on crosses. Those who deserve the wrath of the government hang on crosses. And so there's this negative perception. I mean, think about it. The fact that, that Jesus died a criminal's death, a device of torture, 
Ultimately, God is elevated to something that you see so common today, right? People wear it around their necks. People display it all over the place in art, right? A man who died a criminal's death is celebrated now as, as the savior of the world. God overcomes that negative perception, and he does so by what we read about in Philippians chapter 2. He does that by replacing Jesus in this glorified position that he possessed prior to coming to this earth, right? Philippians 2 says that, that Jesus was God before, right? He didn't come into existence in a manger. He was God eternal before that. We've seen that in John chapter 1, right? Always with God the Father, always God. Becomes human, takes on the form of a servant, empties himself, dies this, this sinner's death, even though he's not a sinner, right? But then this, this glorification that takes place after, through the resurrection where his sacrifice is vindicated, through the ascension into the clouds where he's now seated on high next to the majesty, right? All that overcomes the negativity with the cross. And so that prayer is answered. And look what it says in Revelation chapter five. This is the, the culmination of Jesus's prayer being answered that he would be glorified so that, the God, so that God Father can be glorified. In Revelation chapter five, um, verse nine. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. This is the answer to Jesus's prayer that he is glorified and we do perceive it, we do see it, we do understand it and we can celebrate it. We can celebrate his glory through what occurred on the cross. He prays specifically that the glory would be seen through the cross in verses one and four. That as he goes to, to do this act in obedience to his father, that the father would glorify him. We see on the cross so much about who God is, right? I put in my notes that we see his holiness, we see his justice, his hatred for sin, we see his love for man. One commentator said, and I'm going to say this and I want you to kind of process it for a second. We would not know the love of God fully without the cross. We would not know the love of God fully without the cross. Now, he's not saying that, that God's love wouldn't exist without the cross. His, his love would have still existed. It just wouldn't have been known or experienced by us, right? So God is creating man and then making himself known to man. And one of the great ways that he makes himself known, one of the great ways that he shows both his holiness and his justice and his love all together at the same time is in this event on the cross, right? And so mankind is sitting back and, and seeing this and observing this. And we talk about it 2,000 years later, and we can talk about who God is through this, this devastating event. 
that moves from devastation to celebration with the resurrection, right? But it's through the cross, and Jesus prays for this, that God's glory, his goodness would be seen through the cross, and it certainly is. He also prays that God's glory would be seen in heaven. In verse five, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's he praying for? He's praying for Philippians 2 to happen, right? He's saying, God, I've emptied myself. I've taken on the form of a servant. I've been obedient. And I'm about to be obedient to the point of death. He says, I'm, I'm now praying for the back part of Philippians 2 to happen, right? That's, that's where you, you exalt me. You give me a name that's above every other name. You put me back into the position that I was in before I ever left, right? And so he's praying for that to take place. He's had this glory for all time, but now in heaven, think about this. He is greater in heaven now because of what's known about him, right? We don't have a whole lot of description about Jesus in the Old Testament prior. Was he there? Absolutely. We see that in John chapter one. Always eternally been with the Father. But what do we see happening after the cross and the resurrection? We see this, this unbelievable celebration all through the book of Revelation, right? Where, where created beings, humans, angels, all these other creatures that are described and talked about, what are they doing? They are giving glory to Jesus because he's the slain lamb that is seen as worthy, the one who can open the seals, right? So in being placed back into heaven, the knowledge of who Jesus is has increased and this celebration increases as a result. He goes on to pray that, that the glory would be seen through the church. In verses two and three, where he says um, that, that you've given me the authority to, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We see in the rest of his prayer, he is praying specifically for us to be the type of people that can celebrate his glory in such a way that it results in others coming to know God too. The timing of the crucifixion determined by God. The goal is the glory of God through the glory of the Son. And then number three, the result would be the salvation of mankind. For our kids, Jesus went to the cross so mankind could be saved. His goodness is seen through the securing of salvation for all those who belong to God. Every single one that belongs to God inherits this eternal life, and none of them are lost. We see that later in the prayer. Not one single person is lost that belongs to God. So these are some things that are revealed to us about the crucifixion. Before we even get into application for us is that it's on God's timetable. It's absolutely for his glory. It's a way that God chose to show us more of who he is, right? That, that he's holy, that he's just, and that he's love. And we understand those things about God so much more through the cross. And it's through that act that salvation is now made available, right? Salvation is now possible for mankind through the work of Christ. So what does that mean for us? Number one, we need to receive this eternal life by knowing the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus says here in this passage. For our kids, we can be saved by putting our faith in God. Look what he says. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? We become aware of a need for salvation by seeing ourselves in light of God's glory. So 
Jesus talks about the need for us to know the Father and the Son for salvation to even be possible, right? And so what does it mean to know the Father and the Son? Well, it means to have knowledge of his glory, of his goodness, and to see ourselves in light of it, right? So as, as we've been sharing the gospel recently with, with AJ more and more, we're, we're helping him to see, and he's starting to understand who God is and who he is in light of God's goodness and holiness, that God's perfect and, and he's not, that he's, in, he's a sinner in need of a savior, right? So for us to be saved, it requires this knowledge <coughs> of the Father and the Son. We must know the Father and the Son as one revealed in Scripture. So there's this theological need to, to, to have our knowledge of God right, that Jesus isn't a, a created being, he's not an angel, he's not a prophet, right? That Jesus doesn't replace the Father, as some people would teach, that, that God the Father and God the Son are so unified that there really is only Jesus. And sometimes we see him as a father and sometimes we see him as a son, right? Like we have to have our, our knowledge of God right to be saved because if we're putting our faith and trust in God for salvation, we can't put it in a false God or a made up God, right? We got to trust in the one true God and that's what's talked about here. But then number two, that knowledge makes us aware of a need for salvation and then we experience salvation by placing our faith in God's revealed glory, we see his goodness, we see his holiness, we see his justice, we see his love, and we believe it, right? We believe that it's sufficient for our salvation. We believe that Jesus did all that's needed to make fellowship with our creator possible. Now, for a lot of us in this room, this has already happened, right? So, so this portion is for those that, that it hasn't happened for yet, right? We are appealing to you to receive eternal life. God's done everything necessary to make it happen. He has displayed to us in the best way possible who he is. And he's asked us to respond to that, to receive that eternal life. But then I think we see another piece of application for us, and that's number two. That we're to glorify God by doing the work given to us. Because Jesus talks about in his earthly life what he has done to, in verb format, make much of God, right? He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is saying, I take your glory, your goodness, God, and I have celebrated your goodness in all the work that you've given me to do so that other people, my disciples, have come to know you through my work. Right? I, have, I have glorified you by doing what you have asked me to do. So obedience absolutely tied to what it means for us to glorify God. We have to obey God, right? But there's so much more tied to it that I want you to see here in the, as we get to begin to wrap this up, is that Jesus does it in such a way. He accomplishes the work in such a way that he is, he is celebrating the goodness of God. And he can say confidently, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How do we do this? How do we glorify God by doing the work that he's given to us? For our kids, we're to help others see how good God is after we are saved. All right, so number one, we must first know the work that has been given to us, right? That, that should go without saying. But if we're going to glorify God by doing the work that's given to us, we must first know the work that's been given to us. And so 
that necessitates us reading and studying his word to know those instructions, right? We have to know the work that's been given to us. We must first know the word so that we can then properly obey it, which allows us to put his glory on display clearly. So as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, one, we're learning about his goodness. We're learning about his glory. And then two, we're learning about the work that he's called us to do and how he has called us to do it, right? Which leads into number two, we must accomplish the work with the proper purpose. And that's celebrating his goodness for others to see. So in a lot of ways, it's not just about the work that we're called to do. There's also a big part about how we are called to do it. Let me just read off some statements that I put in my notes for you. Jesus' sole purpose was to bring glory to God by doing work given to him, to celebrate the goodness of God by making it known. We now serve as the tangible display of God's glory to those around us, and we are growing in our capacity to do this. Okay, so now that Jesus has been removed, what's left here on this earth? Must believers, and we're called to be this, this image of God to those around us. They're to see God's goodness on display, obviously in a flawed way, in a less glorious way than what Jesus can do. But there's still this perspective that we're to have that, hey, I'm supposed to image God in a way where others see him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right? We're in this process of being transformed, but as we're being transformed and changed, we should be putting on display who God is to other people around us. Everything we, we do must have at its purpose the worship of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, all right? So not just instructions to eat and drink and do whatever, but to do it in such a way where you are celebrating the goodness of God. All the details of our life are meant to reveal and celebrate the goodness of God, times of plenty and in times of need. We are to help the blind see the goodness they are missing, we're called to make worshipers of others by helping them find joy in Jesus. Psalms 34, 8 talks about tasting and seeing that God is good, right? How we live our life is supposed to, uh, is supposed to make that evident to other people, the, the goodness of God. Our mission is to recognize his goodness in our life and to celebrate it in all that we do with the intent of helping others see it too, and what's encouraging here is that we can pray for this to happen like Jesus did, right? When Jesus gives instructions to his disciples about how to pray, he starts by talking about hallowed be thy name, right? Jesus talks about praying here, or he's praying here for God to make this glory happen. And so we too can pray. We too can pray every single day when we start our day that whatever comes our way, Right? We've, we've set a course, we've set plans, but whatever we're dealt that day, that God would give us wisdom in knowing how to respond to each and every situation, each and every situation in a way that will make, will make much of God. 
and will help others better understand his goodness. So let me give you, let me give you an example. Because this, this applies to, as 1 Corinthians says, anything and everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, okay? A lot of us had what we would call work last week, right? Some of us have jobs that we actually go to and get paid. Others of us stay at home, but there's still work to be done, right? So let's think of it in terms of our work, however you would define your, your, your job, your responsibility during the week, right? All of us had that last week. All of us are going to have it this week, right? Um, glorifying God through that work, some basic ways that we glorify God in this. Some basic ways. Well, we fulfill the creation mandate back in Genesis. What is that? That we're, that we're called to subdue this earth. We're called to work this earth, right? So everybody that did work last week, in a way, honored God through the, through the obedience of that act, right? Whether you went to a job to, to make money to provide for your family or whether you stayed at home and helped take care of the kids or the home and, and just took care of responsibilities that maybe you didn't get paid for, right? We can all say that we did something faithful to what we're called to do and that's to subdue the earth, right? And then in caring for our families, we went a step further and we obeyed the command given in 1 Timothy 5, 8, which says that we're to take care of our families. And if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? So on a basic level, we can all say that in some ways we glorified God because we were obedient to the things that God called us to do. But so was the lost world for the, for the large part too, right? A lot of lost people went to work last week and a lot of lost people go to work this week. So there has to be something else unique and different that transforms our work in such a way where we are glorifying God through it. A, a deeper, more intentional way that we go about working this week. Let me give you some examples. Because I think too often we, we work and we forget to do some of this stuff. And it's this stuff that transforms our work into an act of worship where we are, we, are making, we are making much of the goodness of God, right? It means that we go to work without grumbling, right? We don't complain about the jobs that are given to us. We don't complain about the tasks that we have to do. And here's the thing, man, our kids are watching it, right? Our kids are learning behavior by what they see, right? If, if for some of you, your kids are still there or they wake up and you're still there before you go off to work, right? The last thing that they need to hear from you is how um, unhappy you are about what you have to do today. And that's going to a job that God's blessed you with, right? That provides for your family, right? They start to learn this, this behavior if we're grumbling and complaining about our work. Those that stay around the house, right? If all they hear is the grumbling and complaining about the daily monotonous stuff that you have to do, it's learned behavior that it's okay to grumble and complain about the work that God's given you right? What's transforming and what makes God look good is when we're content, pleased, happy, and even joyful in the work that God gives to us, even if, it, if it's something that would be very tempting to be grumbling and complaining about. We, we, we work in a way where we don't grumble and complain because God obviously calls us to work, and you could get that just on a surface level of reading scripture, but the more you study it, the more you realize, okay, not only do I have to go to work, I have to do it without grumbling and complaining, right? Number two, we do it with a focus on doing the jobs that others won't, right? We've seen that recently in the washing of the disciples' feet, right? Imagine if you got up every day and you have an opportunity, 
because we're going to do this tomorrow, right? All of us have some type of work that we're responsible for tomorrow. Imagine you getting up tomorrow and your, your perspective, your desire, your intent is, I'm going to do this today and I'm not going to grumble and complain about it one time. And I'm going to look for the jobs that nobody else wants to do and I'm going to serve other people by doing them, right? I'm going to serve my boss or I'm going to serve my coworkers. Or I'm going to serve my spouse, my kids, whatever it may be. I'm going to do the things that nobody else wants to do. Right? I'm going to do it joyfully because, remember, I'm, not, I'm doing it without grumbling and complaining. Right? And then I'm going to do it with a submissive heart to the boss that God's provided to me, which is unbelievably difficult because it's so tempting to talk negatively about our boss with other coworkers that want to. Right? Many of us walk into conversations where we can jump right in and offer our two cents about why our boss is, is such a bad boss. Right? Imagine working a job, though, faithfully, day in, day out, where we go to the work, we don't grumble and complain about it. We do it with a mindset of serving those around us. So we, we look for the jobs that nobody else wants to do and we do them. And we do it with a submissive heart to the authority that we answer to. And then we do it with the intent of celebrating God versus seeking to promote ourselves. Because a lot of times you may try to do all this in hopes that it'll result in a promotion for you, right? Maybe I'll get a better job out of this if I do it and my boss never hears me grumble and complain. And I try to do all the service stuff so maybe he'll take notice and I'll get promoted and my goodness will be displayed, right? But instead, as a believer, I come to work and I do it celebrating God versus seeking to promote myself. The goal of doing my job with excellence, whether my supervisor sees it or not. That's a, that's a lot of stuff right there to try to master. And that's just getting up and going to work tomorrow, Right? At its root, you're being obedient tomorrow by doing work because God's called us to do that. But so do, so do lost people. Right? But God's called us to do it in a unique way without grumbling and complaining, with a servant's heart, without a desire to promote ourselves. to do it um, even in the context of Paul talking about a slave to a master. Right? You serve him well. You serve it like you're doing it to God and not your boss. You serve it whether he sees it or doesn't see it. Right? You do it at home whether your spouse acknowledges it or not. And if your spouse fails to acknowledge it, it doesn't create grumbling and complaining in your heart. Right? That's how we start to make much of God just in our work, right? We haven't even talked about like our parenting and our marriage and and all these other things, right? Just in our work, we have an unbelievable opportunity to make much of God this week. But too often times we just default in, I got to go to work tomorrow. I'm going to get up and I'm going to push through it and probably grumble and complain a little bit about it and probably be frustrated that my boss didn't acknowledge the good work that I did do, da 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 And then that spills over into our kids, and our kids are seeing that perspective too. Jesus says, I glorified you, right? I celebrated your goodness by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. We're called to glorify God with whatever situation he gives to us. We don't really get to pick it. We make some choices and decisions and and we make some plans, but rarely do our weeks go the way that we expect them to go, right? It's kind of like a TV show, Chopped, right? Where you're just kind of handed a basket of ingredients, right? And what are you told to do? Make a great meal out of this, right? These chefs are, are unbelievable chefs, They could make a great meal if they were allowed to go to the grocery store and pick out all the ingredients. They could make their specialties, the things that they're great at making, right? 
But in that chop setting, they're given stuff that they don't choose, and they're told to make something great out of it, right? To, 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 to add some stuff maybe to it, but to ultimately handle the situation that's given to them and make a great meal out of this. And as I was studying this week, like it, it made me think that that's kind of what, what's the expectation for us, right? Is that we don't get to choose our circumstances. We don't get to choose all these variables ourselves, right? We're just kind of dealt some of this stuff. And yet in the midst of that stuff that we're dealt, God calls us to, to glorify him, to make much of him and his goodness with whatever situations we find ourselves in. And Paul says, I have figured out how to do that. I have figured out how to be content. I have figured out how to, to make much of God, whether I have a lot or a little. And that was his hope for the Philippian church, that they too would get to that point. And Jesus says, I, I've, I've made much of you, Father, in the work that I've accomplished here on earth. And it's a reminder to us that if God's glory was his concern, it's got to be our concern in the work that we do. And we all have a week coming up here with all kinds of opportunities to make much of him. And I, t- I can tell you, if, 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 if you do half the things that I just mentioned in your approach to work this week, it will stand out to your coworkers. Because I can tell you right now, the ones that work for me that do at least half of this, they stand out to me. They are different types of workers. And the ones that are doing it this way, I know it's based off the, 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 the spiritual commitment they've made in their life too. Like it is flowing from that. So application for you today is I want you to identify one thing this week that you're going to do. It doesn't have to be the example that I used with work. But what is one thing you're going to do this week And how will you glorify God to the fullest in that activity? How how are you going to make much of God in that one thing this week? And it can be work if you want to choose that, since I made it easy for you and kind of gave you some of the things that go with that. What's one thing that you're going to do this week, and how can you glorify God to the fullest in that activity? It's going to take you sitting down and pondering it and saying, okay, what do I have to do in this for God's goodness to be displayed to others? What's one thing you're going to do this week and how will you glorify God to the fullest? Whatever you're dealt this week, right? You don't get to pick and choose it. You open up that basket. You look inside and say, okay, this is what today holds. This is what, this is what I've been given today. How am I going to make much of God's goodness with this basket? Family worship questions. Why should we try to glorify God in all that we do? And who or what can help encourage us to glorify God regularly? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus who emptied himself, took on the form of a man, and went to the cross so that we could better understand you and we could better understand ourselves. God, I don't know if we could understand the seriousness of sin if we didn't have this this example of you dying for it in our place. Sin would have still been serious. I just don't know if we would have been able to comprehend how serious it is without seeing the great links that you went to to one day put an end to it. 
God, we know that you possess great love, but that's become even more realized again, as we've seen the great lengths that you're willing to go to, to save a people. And by saving that people, it's ultimately for your glory. God, we thank you that you're a good God and we're thankful that you did not keep that goodness to yourself, that instead you have put it on display for us to see. And you've given us the ability to comprehend and understand it, even on a small scale that blows our minds. God, I pray that your glory would resonate in our hearts and minds this morning. I pray that it would compel us to live this upcoming week in such a way where others see that we believe you are good. God, we know that that through trials and difficulties, you have called us to be content and to trust and to believe that the sorrow is temporary and that the joy is to come. And God, we want people around us to see that we truly believe that, that our attitude is different than somebody who doesn't have that hope. God, we want people to see as we work this week that we are willing to do so without grumbling and complaining because we believe that the work you've given to us is on purpose. And so we embrace it. We embrace it with contentment. God, we want to do it in such a way where we seek to serve others and we put our needs behind the needs of others. We're willing to do jobs that nobody else would want to do because we believe you're a good God and we want to make your goodness known. God, help us to to leave compelled to, to even think about this beyond just now that we would want this to impact this upcoming week, that, that our ears haven't just been tickled this morning and, and we can respond and say that was, that, was, that was good or that was true to Scripture, but instead we'd be leaving today saying, how can I live that out? How can this week be different than last week? How can I, how can I put God's glory on display in a greater way this week than I did last week? God, I pray that would be our desire and that you would accomplish that in us We pray for that to happen. We pray that your name would be hallowed, that your name would be glorified this week through our activity. Pray the Holy Spirit would lead us to have that type of effectiveness this week, that others around us would see your goodness through our attitude and our actions. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.